Which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay. What's the second best? There is no second best. There's no second best crypto asset. There's a crypto asset. It's called Bitcoin, right? Right? There's no second best. Okay. Welcome to the Why Bitcoin Show with me, Dale Warburton. It's a weekly podcast on why Bitcoin matters and what makes it fundamentally different to every other crypto token in existence. I've seen firsthand how crypto really works, and my mission is to speak to the brightest minds on earth to help ordinary people distill crypto fact from fiction. Because as Lynn Olden says, and it's spot on, those that conflate Bitcoin and crypto simply don't understand either. Welcome, Mr. Pete Dunworth. How are you going? Really good, Dale. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. It's great to see you. Absolutely fantastic to see you too, sir. And thanks so much for making the time to chat to me. This is my inaugural podcast. You're the first guest and you're so kind to join me. So yeah, really looking forward to today's conversation. And, um, and I really appreciate the support from the outset, I must say. You're welcome. Who wouldn't want to appear on the best looking man in Bitcoin's inaugural podcast? <laughs> I might start running with that, but I think it's borderline, borderline's arrogant. So um, we'll sort of, I might jump onto that later, but not for now. A bit of proof of work first. Hey? Um, Very good. So I guess, I guess, Pete, for those who aren't familiar with you, um, perhaps if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about yourself, who is Pete Dunworth? What's your background like? Um, and then, we can sort of dive into some of the Bitcoin stuff in a minute. Sure thing. Well, uh, my name is Peter Dunworth. I am a, I run a multi-family office, uh, which looks after high net worth families, uh, maybe a dozen families we look after in Sydney, Australia. Um, we also look after some additional clients for Bitcoin and self-custodying their Bitcoin in a multi-seed collaborative custody, uh, clients literally all over the world. So my day-to-day -day, day -day is spread between traditional finance and um, much like yourself, have a, a gnawing interest in Bitcoin that turns into uh, a little bit more than an interest and really a passion and a hobby that uh, takes up an, an inordinate amount of time. But uh, it's something I love and am passionate about. So on a personal level, um, really enjoy that side of things. But from a work front, my day-to-day my nine-to-five is literally dealing in traditional assets helping families uh, invest their money across traditional asset classes, such as property, stocks and bonds, uh, commodities too, if that, that is required. And my, my sole role is to help clients make smart decisions with their money. So that means reducing risk and uh, hopefully providing an outperformance on what the markets are giving them. Interesting. And just in terms of the sort of average profile of your client, I mean, I guess, given your propensity towards Bitcoin, um, are we talking largely folks in the sort of older age bracket, um, which we would call boomers, or are you sort of looking after folks all across the spectrum? The majority of my clients I would consider to be in that boomer class. Um, probably our parents' age would be a typical client. We look after a lot in that, that respect. Um, and that's probably where I think the door opens to have conversations with them around Bitcoin because it's not a traditional asset class that um, that demographic is particularly comfortable with or uh, understands too well. So yeah. therein lies the opportunity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess so. Uh, I wanted to try something something interesting for our, for my first podcast, uh, um, 
And I thought to frame the discussion that we're about to have, um, I'd like to start off with one of my favorite quotes in Bitcoin by Parker Lewis. And it goes along the lines of practically everyone is unequipped to evaluate Bitcoin because it doesn't fit in, in any prior mental framework. To make it even more difficult, Bitcoin is so abstract an application and so far from a tangible phenomenon that it's like staring into the abyss. Bitcoin is both difficult to see and impossible to unsee once discovered. So, uh, Pete, I'd love you to tell me a little bit about what initially made Bitcoin impossible to see for you, uh, or impossible to see initially, rather, and then impossible subsequently once you had actually seen it. That is such a beautiful question. I've and and there are so many components there. I might start with say a little bit of a history lesson on myself, which sets me up to misunderstand what the representation of Bitcoin is. And probably all of us fall into this trap because I think it's something that's quite primitive to, to humans in that as a boy, I was told, and probably much like yourself, uh, from my parents that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And so immediately when you hear something that sounds too good to be true, a red flag instantly goes up that allows you to dismiss said opportunity or whatever that may be. And I had the misfortune of having a traditional education in finance. I grew up in an entrepreneurial household where we talked about business literally from the ages that I can remember just about, literally from the mm -hmm. ages of eight onwards, which was a such such an opportunity and such a, a great grounding in how how the business world worked and then went on to study accounting and finance at university uh, and then went to a funds management business which basically taught us how to value assets listed assets um, whether that be property whether that be stocks bonds you name it they did it all and then moved into credit understood you know what makes good credit and that's a, basically a risk assessment tool basically understanding credit or what is good credit and then move to the other side of the balance sheet. But what I will say is uh, there's sort of a typical lineage of <clears throat> understanding with Bitcoin, and there are sort of certain frames that each of us have to go through. And I've been through all of them, so I can sort of attest to the problems of each of them. And I had the good fortune of, or, or maybe um, a regrettable uh, opportunity 12 years ago where my brother said to me, hey, I think, you know, you should buy some Bitcoin when it was $3. And because my traditional founding and background in what I did, I instantly dismissed it that that will never work. And that's typically the first stage of a Bitcoiner. Uh, that'll never work. And then I moved to, oh, the government's going to shut that down. And then I moved to, oh, what about the new, new thing? Your altcoining, shitcoining, whatever phase that most Bitcoiners go through. And then you come to the realization, sort of the fourth step in becoming a Bitcoiner is the fact that, oh, there really is no alternative. It's just Bitcoin. The altcoins are just a distraction for, for the main game, which is Bitcoin. So that's typically been my journey for that. And I, I really can't tell you the penny drop moment where it happened because I've been hearing about Bitcoin since 2011. 2013, my brother started a business in Silicon Valley in Bitcoin and crypto. But I can tell you, I've got a great relationship with him where we'd speak quite often. And he helped me through those phases of becoming a Bitcoiner, where it took me five years, though, because there weren't the resources or education available to expand on and, I guess, scratch, uh, you know, 
an intellectual itch, so to speak, on, hey, what about this? What about that? And have questions answered. Um, fortunately for me, my brother was deep down this rabbit hole and understood this better than most people on earth. And I could speak to him every other day about my latest questions on it. And so within a sort of five-year time frame, got comfortable about investing my own money in it. And this is a big deal for me because I am very, very risk averse. Yet I felt comfortable enough to put my own money into it back in 2016. Wow. So I'm guessing here that you're used to evaluating companies. And so something that doesn't have a cash flow is sort of other than obviously we, we know gold, but that must have already sort of made it difficult in your mind to value because you're thinking to yourself, um, I know that's something that I deal with actually when I'm talking to folks in, in TradFi, you know, um, how do I actually assess the value of this thing because it doesn't have a cash flow? And that was initially what put me off. Um, I was a Warren Buffett disciple, far from a professional yeah. investor, but I certainly was like, I just don't know how the hell to actually evaluate this. And it just seems to be the greater fool theory at work. So, yeah, it's interesting. So you don't have a moment specifically when you thought to yourself, aha, or anything like that. Nothing. There wasn't like a specific. It was like a slow orange pull, as we would say, a, sl a slow, slow melting, <laughs> a slow release orange pull. Exactly. Which is so funny because... I mean, you know, my story is a little bit um, is a bit different in the sense that obviously dismissed it forever, and but I always question stuff, and I'm I'm innately sort of anti-authoritarian. I you know I tend to to I've questioned everything from day one, and I've also got a degree in philosophy. So when I first heard the question about what is money, that started going, what the hell is money? And then Simon Dixon said if governments are just printing all this money, what are we paying tax for? And that's when I was like, whoa, <laughs> because that just made me really rethink fiat currency. So um, I guess it depends where you come from. In your, in your instance, it was a slow release orange bull, but for me, it kind of whacked me over the head and I ran downstairs, bought a little bit of Bitcoin and told my wife, hey, I bought some of this Bitcoin stuff. <laughs> well, okay. So now that you've you've kind of seen it, um, a lot of people in Bitcoin kind of what they'll tend to do then is say that it's really difficult to look at the world in a different way once you've actually become a Bitcoiner. So, I mean, we can talk separately about what an actual Bitcoiner is and what you think that is. But, um, you know, I guess from my perspective, what has happened, you know, what, what is it about um, having now seen it that makes it now very difficult to unsee? Has it sort of changed your the way that you think, the way your brain's rewired or the way you assess the world or other aspects of your life. I'd love to hear a bit about that. I've got to say, it is probably the most profound change in my life outside of children and being married, having your own family. I think for me personally, understanding Bitcoin and the changes that it makes on an internal level, I've got to say is... It is, it can't be understated. And this question you raise around, <clears throat> once you see it, you can't unsee it. it. It really is sort of a filter that gives you, I think, a layer or an understanding, a level of critical thinking that enables you to take that level of critical thinking to about any problem that you're faced with or any problem that comes up in the world. And then through effectively 
you know, when you go down that Bitcoin rabbit hole, there is so much learning to do. Like it is, people say it's hundreds of hours. Like if I looked at how much time I spent on Bitcoin, I'd be approaching 10,000 hours, which is a lot of time. Like, um, you know, I went through and did an accounting degree and I, I can assure you it didn't take me more than four to 500 hours of study to get through that. A lot less to tell you the truth. So I've spent a lot more time on this and I have a degree. I've got a master's equivalent in, you know, superannuation. And I can tell you that, you know, I've spent far more time on this than anything else. And what it does is, and this is where I think, say for Bitcoiners, is that, you know, when Bitcoiners get together, because they've effectively gone through a shared experience of learning and going down rabbit holes and effectively doing proof of work to understand this thing that is Bitcoin, because it is such a, it's such an intangible, you know, how do you describe it? Well, it's very difficult to get your head around because it means different things to different people. But when you go down that rabbit hole and do a certain amount of work, it allows you to connect with Bitcoiners all over the world who have done a similar amount of work, who have a level of critical thinking that is very similar to yours. So there's there's a huge platform of shared values and thoughts to meet in the middle on a whole host of different topics. So for me, it's been a, a profound experience that it's it's leveled up my thinking. It's leveled up my critical thinking. I think that's improved or helped improve my day-to-day -day when it comes to traditional finance because we get a lot of things come across my desk and within first page, I'm literally, I'm already ripping it up and throwing it you know, in the bin because it's just, it's rubbish in short. And, and this is where, you know, when you go down that rabbit hole, you just get very good at, uh, I, I think, well, you start prioritizing your time a lot more importantly than others' time. And if people aren't meeting you on that level, then, you know, there's a, a dismissal of, you know, that work. Yes, exactly. It's it's difficult to find a Bitcoiner who isn't a critical thinker on average, I'd say. I, I don't think you can find it because most Bitcoiners I know um, are exploring other areas of their life, whether it's health or you can, you can sort of education, you can pick any of these sort of big sectors. Um, you can, you know, the media, I mean, that's certainly my special bugbear. Um, but all of these things that I guess from, we haven't really been equipped with the skills to think critically per se. And so there's something about, I guess, being a Bitcoiner to me that innately you're somebody who's questioning. You've got to be, there's a certain level of, open-mindedness from the outset and the ability to question things. So, um, yeah, I totally agree with what you were saying there, Pete. Um, I think the critical thinking piece, the thread is, is common throughout. People tend to think Bitcoin is all the same, but you know, I've met all different types from sort of hippies to high flyers. And um, there's just this commitment to truth and critical thinking that I've kind of seen throughout. There, there, is, uh, there is also a high level of dare I say, autism or spectrum type behavior within the Bitcoin community, which is something I love because I feel like personally, I suffer from that affliction as well. So. <laughs> Obsessiveness, basically. Like when, what's your new thing, Dale? That's what people will say to me. Do you know what I mean? Because I mean, lately it's like, are you still into that Bitcoin thing? But I've had a lot of things that I've gone deep into over the years. And, um, you know, people think, well, Bitcoin is the latest and it's going to, it's going to pass. But yeah, they've got bad news coming. Um, I guess sort of shifting from the philosophical side of things um, and to sort of talk more in line with, I guess, where your experience and current profession is, um, 
you, you spoke recently at a conference about the about a chart that sort of illustrated how Bitcoin was pretty much convincingly by far the, the best performing asset of the past decade. Yet others will sort of dismiss it and, you know, question that A, it's an asset class in itself um, because it's highly correlated to the NASDAQ or it's just a high risk tech stock. Um, or they'll say, yeah, but those initial early gains won't be replicated into the future. Now it's just those folks are really lucky. So those sort of two interlinked questions, I'd love to get some, some commentary for you on that there um, related to, you know, that Bitcoin is in an asset class and we're not likely to see the gains that we've seen thus far. Well, when it comes to the gains that we've seen so far, I think a huge misunderstanding across the broader sector is, or for those who aren't in Bitcoin, the work I've done on this, I believe that there are more gains into the future than there are behind us. So to, to alleviate any concern for anyone listening to this who thinks, oh, I've missed the boat, I don't think you've missed the boat. I think this party is just getting started. And, you know, there have been multiple, uh, I guess, death notices for Bitcoin where it's 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 now dead and yet this thing just continues to come back. And I think it's a very difficult technology to kill. And if you go down that rabbit hole that we talk of and you understand, you know, what a decentralised distributed system looks like and the ability for that to run itself without any any controlling authority being able to dismantle or undermine it is a huge thing. And this is where I think Bitcoin has the ability to deliver um, or, or to have longevity, the likes of which we've never seen before. And to, to my point around where I think everyone gets into Bitcoin, basically everyone gets into Bitcoin to get rich. And, you know, it's the most shallow of our human emotions. It's our most basic of desires or needs uh, from a Maslow needs hierarchy you look at it, it's our base primary driver. When you look at our little reptilian brain, what is the key driver that we look at? It's greed and fear. And so my point is, is that there's more upside in the future than there is behind us with Bitcoin, which means effectively, if you could go back in time and buy in 2009, buying Bitcoin today is the equivalent of buying back in 2009. And when you put that to people and say, would you buy Bitcoin in 2009 if you had a time traveling machine? Anyone with half a brain says, oh, yeah, of course I'd do that. That's like, well, as someone who's studied Bitcoin for thousands of hours, who's got 25 years or more experience in financial markets, in accounting and finance, and has worked on both sides of the balance sheet, my firm belief is, is that there's more upside in the future in front of us than there is behind us with Bitcoin. So therein lies your opportunity. Maybe you should get some. Well, so when you think about all the different potential paths towards what some would call hyper-Bitcoinization or, um, you know, the, the $10 million, the $100 million Bitcoin, you know, you, you think about things like it's a, you know, it's a digital reserve asset, like a neutral digital reserve asset. Um, do you think about uh, takes over the remittance space? Uh, there's a whole bunch. I think there's like eight or nine. I don't have them in front of me, but Creasus recently did a post on it. And, you know, whether you want to suck some, some of the total addressable market from gold or some of the negative um, negative yielding bonds. I mean, what do you think ultimately is going to potentially push this into the mainstream consciousness where people are going to sit up and go, okay, 
this thing hasn't died. What are we going to do now? Like, we need to get some of this. Oh, and it's expensive. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure what pushes us over the boundary on that. And this is where I think where hyper-Bitcoinization, I think, has been fantasized about as being a mass exodus from the current system or a mass adoption of Bitcoin. And I just don't think it's that. I think it's each person opts out and finds hyper-Bitcoinization on a personal level. And I can tell you my experience in doing this is I, I don't think, I, I think hyper-Bitcoinization is a very personal journey and it's something that each of us find in their own time. So for me personally, I think, you know, I'm a long way to being hyper-Bitcoinized uh, hyper from a personal level in that, you know, from a personal point of view, my savings is Bitcoin. My financial success, although I measure financial success in dollars and cents, for my client profiles, and that's what we get judged on, on a personal level, I play a different game. I play a game that I think everyone on earth can play, which is I just want to have more sats at this point in time today than I did this time last year. And that's yeah. a really easy game to play. That's a game that everyone on earth can play. It's a really simple game to play. I don't need an accountant, a financial advisor, investment advisor, a credit advisor, a solicitor, a, you know, in in a, an accountant who specializes in tax, I just need me and I need to have one more sat than I did this time last year. It's the simplest game on earth when it comes to finance and all, all, all money is basically a game. And this is how, you know, I think about, you know, finance and what we do for clients. We're, we're fundamentally playing a very complicated game. And in order to maximize that return in the fiat world, you need a host of advisors in order to help you maximize that dollar value at the end of the day. However, in a hyper-Bitcoinized world, you don't need all the ancillaries around that. All you need to do is make sure you spend less than you earn, which is literally the golden rule of finance. If you spend less than you earn, you basically saved one more set than you did this time last year, and you won the financial game. That's all you have to do in a hyper-Bitcoinized world. So I, I don't know what's going to drive mass adoption on that, but I'll, I'll tell you what is driving adoption, and that is, <coughs> excuse me, Government's behaving badly with our money, government's overspending, reckless spending, um, government overreach, government stopping transactions happening, um, rightly or wrongly, I don't have a dog in the fight, I'm just saying that people who have not been, I guess, uh, accused of a crime or trialled and found guilty of a crime under our Western democracies, we have a presumption of innocence until proven guilty, yet with the Canadian truckers, the government had an overreach to basically stop transactions happening without any charges being laid and without being found guilty. Now, this is a fundamental breach of our rights as citizens of Western democracies. Our entire legal system is built on the presumption of innocence. So what's going to tide us over into hyper-Bitcoinization? I don't know, but the governments are doing everything in their power to make sure that happens as quick as possible. And for those who are paying any attention, I think, you know, they're telling us, hey, we're going to continue abusing our, our power, our rights. We're going to continue with reckless spending. We're going to continue with reckless printing of money and until you guys do something about it. And this is where I think Bitcoiners at the moment are sort of looking at this and thinking we're particularly dissatisfied with those events that are happening that are meant to be in our control because we vote for this, yet it turns out very differently. So... Well, yeah, there's there's actually like um, there's a there's so much to say there actually, there Pete, because yeah, that blew my mind. I mean, you've got a um, 
in Canada, uh, you know, the trackers, that really was an eye-opening moment for me. That was sort of, Justin Trudeau did a lot of marketing for Bitcoin during that time because it really just spoke to the need to have something that's fundamentally unconfiscatable. I mean, um, the South African constitution was actually premised on the Canadian um, charter of human rights, oh. which was actually quite ironic because, you know, you sort of just decided um, at a whim uh, unilaterally without any uh, presumption of innocence to, uh, to your point that yeah, we, we actually don't think what you're doing is right. So we're going to stop you. And it doesn't make sense. Um, you know, I think there is a quote um, that I just pulled up because it always, I always think it's quite prescient, but I guess some folks will um, you know, accuse you of being a, uh, what is the what's the um the c word conspiracy theorist hey? so uh or it was a terrorist <laughs> and, and, yeah. and and let let me just be clear i don't have a dog in that fight and i don't care what i i don't want the truckers to overthrow the canadian government but i just want a rule of law that is fair for everyone and a rule a legal system that we've imp implemented with rules and regulations and to overthrow that for a certain instant sets a very bad precedence and 100%. I understand that it was a concerning time at that point in time. However, governments are very good at overstepping the boundary and never stepping back. So, yeah, hundred percent. No, I, I too like. I like to think just from a principle perspective, if those circumstances justified it, what else could be used in the future to justify that similar level of intervention? So, yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah. Uh, I sort of, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of put out this quote that I like to um, refer to from time to time, um, which is, if you control the food, you control the nation. If you control the energy, you can control the region. If you control the money, you control the world. And the way I think of, and that's Henry Kissinger, um, Klaus Schwab's uh, mentor. And, um, you know, the way I think I look at Bitcoin is it's a, it's a peaceful revolution. It's, a, it's an off-ramp to the financial system and that is just but one of its many many use cases um you know from that perspective the the lack of uh, seizability um never mind the fact that it's deflationary and it's the scarcest digital property we've ever seen on earth and the best money that we've probably ever seen and are likely ever to see in our life again so yeah um i guess i agree with that yeah so to sort of um you know, when what, to pivot a little bit to um, some of the questions that your clients might ask, you know, the one thing I encounter when I talk to folks in TradFi is volatility. How do you suggest investors look at volatility? Because, you know, I think obviously it's highly volatile. I don't know what multiple of volatility is relative to something like a tech-heavy index like the NASDAQ or even the Russell 2000, whatever it might be. How do you have that conversation with your with your clients? Lots, <laughs> lots of time. There's no other way to get around that. In that, there there needs to be the distinction made between volatility and risk. And this is where I think people conflate those two things. People think that volatility is risk, and risk is volatility, but that is not the case. Volatility and risk are two very different things. Volatility means the price goes up and down a lot if it's volatile. However, risk is the underlying problem that you have when something could have potentially a catastrophic failure. And, and this is where, if I look around the asset classes, probably the key asset which gets 
most uh, underrated from a risk perspective are bonds. And personally, I wouldn't touch bonds other than some really short dated bonds. I wouldn't touch bonds to save my life. I wouldn't have them in an investment portfolio because mm. the risk associated with them is off the charts relative to people's understanding of them. They think, oh, it's money good. We can't lose money in a bond, but it's anything from the fact. And if you look at what happened with some of the banks in the US in the last month, we've seen that they invested in bonds. The US gap accounting that they used to value those bonds required them to not even revalue them to mark to market on a daily basis because they were so risk-free from an accounting perspective that they could leave that on the books at the price that they purchased them for, despite mm. the fact that they dropped in, in they dropped in value by 20%. And so when they had a run on the bank, there was a $40 billion hole in the balance sheet and the Federal Reserve had to step in to make good on people claiming money out of that because they didn't want to have a bank run. And then when you compare that to the risk in Bitcoin, we spend a lot of time with our clients trying to educate them around the network metrics and yep. how to assess the network metrics because that to me is how you assess the risk of Bitcoin because the risk of Bitcoin, it's the binary outcome. It's going to be a multi-million dollar asset or it's going to be zero and there's nowhere in between. And so when you think about what are the things we need to look at from an ongoing perspective to ensure that the risk, excuse me, the risk of Bitcoin is mitigated, there are really three things that we need to look at and that anyone can, can look at. The things I look at are what is the hash rate of the network at any point in time? Have we had a significant drop? I'll talk about that in a moment. The next thing is what are the number of nodes operating on the network to act as watchtowers or the gatekeepers for the miners to keep behaving in a way that is aligned with the net network interests? And then the final one is, is a block being produced every 10 minutes? So as long as those three things keep ticking along and moving in the right direction, then the risk of Bitcoin going to zero is very little. And so that's one thing that most clients don't really understand. And so if we look at those three things, <coughs> excuse me, in the last, say, two years, about two years ago, the Chinese had a, a banned Bitcoin mining in, in China, and they had over 50% of the hash rate. The hash rate went from 186 exahashes down to 84 exahashes in the space of three weeks. That was literally more than half the network turned off, literally chopped in half. And despite that, the network kept working perfectly. It was a little slow because there was a lot less computing power, but it basically, it, it worked through that really tough period with flying colors. There, there was no problem on the network and sending transactions, which was a huge tick of approval. And it's going to be very hard to have that style of attack again, because what that event did was it distributed all of the mining power all over the world. Ironically, China is now back mining Bitcoin. Go figure. Yeah. So it's a long-winded answer to your question, but it just requires a lot of understanding and delineating risk from volatility is really critical because this is a very um, low-risk asset to hold with very high volatility. And most people get confused with those two things. They think they're mutually exclusive events, but they actually can be one and the same. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, particularly with the bank runs we've seen of late, um, something I heard today, which I really liked was, you know, Bitcoin is a, um, it's a fully reserved um, bank in cyberspace. And so uh, <laughs> it's, it is the equivalent in my mind. So, 
Yeah, I think what you say makes sense. It make, intuitively, it's, it's, it resonates with me. Um, I guess, I suppose, uh, traditional investors are still probably thinking in terms of risk being measured by you know, standard deviation um, of, of potential outcomes. And um, yeah, but to your point, I think something like those, something like long-term bonds just make absolutely no sense, just from an intellectual perspective, particularly if you think about fiat, like a melting ice cube, you're like, why on earth would I have this thing and hold it for 30 years or whatever it might be? It just makes no sense. My purchasing power is just getting slammed. And that's the official interest rate that they're telling us about. Never mind what I perceive to be the actual real interest rate is like, what kind of stuff can I buy? Um, but I guess that's a whole different rabbit hole. Um, Peter, uh, I do want to sort of uh, shift gears somewhat and um, talk a little bit about some of the other digital assets because it's an area that I, I like to focus on and talk a bit about. And I'm really keen to, as part of this podcast, educate people about all the different other digital assets and how Bitcoin's different, I guess, to start off with what I would say is um, diversification is often regarded as the only free lunch uh, in, in the world, or maybe investing. I'm not sure if I got that right, but <laughs> fundamentally it is something, you know, um, I know like the, one of the Vanguard indices that I'm investing in is a thousand, 200 stocks in it. And, um, you know, uh, some people think that's a wonderful idea. So what is wrong with saying, right, Bitcoin's the king, um, but why not just do a market cap weighted index, Peter? What's wrong with just doing that? Doesn't it make sense to spread the risk across a bunch of assets? That's a great question. And I guess if we draw on some wisdom from arguably the greatest investor of our time would be Warren Buffett. And although he does di diversify his portfolio, he doesn't do that willingly. And a big misconception with Warren and his investment thesis is that he is pro-diversification. This is just not true. He is not pro-diversification at all. He is pro-putting his money into the best possible asset. And sadly, his business has gotten to a size that precludes him from putting all of his money into the best asset he can find. He's no longer able to do that moving forward. And this is where I think we draw some similar parallels before we get into the reasons why Bitcoin be something else is to dismiss that diversification myth. It's a myth that I think index funds have created to effectively pump their funds under management and as a way to sell um, a thesis on investing that has helped deliver a very profitable business for them, but it effectively delivers market returns by default. So it's not the business that we want to be in, although I do mm. understand the methodolo methodology for it. When it comes to Bitcoin, the other cryptos, they're, they're really, I, I want to sort of distinguish between Bitcoin and everything else. And there's sort of a few points I go to on a regular basis. Firstly, Bitcoin is, has the longest immutable chain. Now, what does that mean? Basically, Bitcoin has the highest form of security when it comes to securing transactions and a ledger. And people look at this and think, well, what, what did you just say? What, why is that important? Well, when it comes to dealing with money, security is the most important thing. It is ahead of every other consideration that you need to make. And whether that comes down to um, 
I guess, my risk aversion and being ultra conservative and wanting to avoid the loss of money or alternatively some other metric for, for what I'm looking at. My, my number one concern, particularly when it comes to clients and my own money is avoiding loss of capital. So that is the number one thing. And when Rule I'm number one, don't lose money. That's Warren Buffett, isn't it? <laughs> and rule number two, I think. <laughs> Refer to rule number one. And yes. so <laughs> you, you look at that and you think, well, it, it's a nuanced discussion around risk, volatility, and then not losing money. And Bitcoin is by far the most secure investment in the crypto space. And I delineate that, that I don't consider Bitcoin crypto. I consider everything else but Bitcoin to be crypto. And this is where I look at on a risk-adjusted basis, Bitcoin's upside is completely understated and understood and misunderstood. And its risks from a risk perspective that we talked about earlier are completely overstated. So there is this complete mismatch of people's assumptions as to how well it can perform and how risky it is. And then when you layer that onto crypto, the promises of crypto are completely overstated and the returns are completely inflated relative to Bitcoin and the risks are completely understated, completely misunderstood. The risks in that are just fraught with so many risks I can't tell you. And then when I bring this back to first principles, Bitcoin's effectively built a protocol that all other crypto can effectively be built on, but no other crypto can do what Bitcoin's done. And this is where Bitcoin's a protocol and the crypto are effectively platforms. And this is where, to Croesus's work that you mentioned earlier, one of the key things he, he created a, a graphic, which I think is so powerful, is Bitcoin's the equivalent to, to TCPIP, the internet protocol. And the, the crypto is effectively every company that sits on top of that. And it's that's fundamentally framework. what it comes down to. And so when you think about this from a, you know, just from an asymmetrical bet perspective, why would you bother buying pets.com when you can buy the internet? Why would yeah. you buy any other dot-com bomb in 1999 that's effectively gone to zero? There are thousands of companies that have gone to zero in the, in the last 20 years that, you know, had huge market valuations on the NASDAQ when you can just buy the underlying internet and have all the uptick of everything that's built on that in the future. And this is what most people don't understand. So there's no need to diversify when you've got Bitcoin. However, that's one of the key lessons in finance and, you know, investment advice that, you know, we've got to unwind from clients that, you know, crypto is not the answer. You don't want a weighted portfolio on this because that's the equivalent of saying, hey, uh, we want to have, I don't know, Pick a really poorly performing business that you know is about to go out the door backwards. Say, go back Bitbox. to the mid two thousands, and talk about <laughs> talk about you know blockbuster video. You know, Netflix comes along and it's like saying, hey, we want to have some Netflix and we want to have some blockbuster because we want to be diversified. And it's like, well, no, that's crazy. That's you know, knowing what we know now, you'd look at that and think that's the worst investment advice that you can deliver on because or you could action because you know the trajectory of where things are going, yet you persist with putting your money into a dying asset. Yeah. Yeah, obviously I've got some strong views around that. Um, 
I suppose when I look at crypto, it kind of falls into several buckets. And I guess this is where this is where things get a bit challenging. The one is basically software companies. Um, yeah. I would put like, you know, the likes of Cardano, Ethereum and that sort of thing in that bucket. Um, then there's obviously just outright sort of pump and dump Ponzi's and, and, and scams. Um, so, you know, those are just the ones that are sort of Silicon Valley backed um, tokens related to some monkey picture. And then you can sort of by virtue of that you get with you know an airdrop and then you know then they own 70% of the supply but then they took you know some of the the marketing dollars pumped it up and offloaded on all the users so yeah I, I see them as two fundamentally different it's like saying one's digital gold one is a truly decentralized protocol to your point and the others are just at best companies with a huge amount of execution risk and they don't actually solve a problem they, I can't see any real problem that they solve. So that's what makes me really passionate about, say, Bitcoin v. Crypto. And then I just say crypto solutionism. It's just, there's just no there there. And, um, you know, waiting for whether, you know, whether it's Ethereum and his friends to change the rules for the third, fourth time. Um, that's really not what the point of the space is. This was, this was a, uh, this was like an immaculate conception in the sense that it was sort of given to the world and nobody controls it other than the owners. We we get to decide what the rules are in the sense that, um, you know, there's 21 million. If somebody wants to create a new Bitcoin, they can go and do it. But um, yeah, it's it's been one of the most challenging things for me because I've had to live that life of uh, working in crypto media and just the, yeah, and as I say, at best companies, at worst scams and just, the lack of critical thinking and the utter stupidity and failing to recognize the asymmetric bet of a lifetime. We are, we've got a generational opportunity here. Forget about the principled side of things. You know, we, we love Bitcoin for different reasons too, but yeah. if you just want to talk about the money, you go like, this is the simplest thing to do. And you were saying, you said to me a bit earlier, which, which resonated with me, which was like, it's really simple, you know, investing in Bitcoin. Um, but American Hoddle has this, this this iconic quote that I've sort of kept somewhere um, that I'll butcher, but it's along the lines of like hodling is it's very simple, um, but it's not easy, and that's therein lies the distinction because there's all this stuff coming at you with promises of a better transaction speeds, or you know we can create these little schemes that yield X percent or whatever the case would be. And it's like you don't need that actually. You just need something that TikTok next block that you know that you buy your Bitcoin, take it into cold storage, and that's just less of a free float that's available to the market. We know what the supply curve is. The only question is, is it going to go up in terms of demand? And we're like, yep, obviously. So, you know, it's, it's um, to me, I think crypto is nihilism. That was my kind of rant. I just think it is a bit nihilistic um, and, yeah, stupid too. I, I think it ties into all of our... <clears throat> All of our bad traits as a society at this point in time it ties into short-termism it ties into opportunism it ties into effectively one-upping one another it ties into wanting to make a quick buck in a very short time frame it ties into taking uh, advantage of people who are less sophisticated you know it's not a moral or a, an ethically right or correct thing to be doing you know, when you and I know what these projects are going to do, they're basically going to benefit the insiders of these, these crypto assets. 
and then they're going to be dumped on retail unsuspecting victims who are hoping to get an outcome much like the insiders who dump on them got but they don't understand that they're the exit liquidity and they're the ones who are going to lose 90 95% if not more of of their assets that they yeah. put into this and then you know excluding the moral or ethical um question marks around crypto there's also the fact that you know from an investment perspective and just sort of tying this to numbers because that's basically what I live and work in so I'm kind of quite comfortable talking about that there are over 30,000 different crypto projects now how does someone as a new investor to the space sift through 30,000 different crypto projects to find the one or two that's actually going to outperform bitcoin and this is the problem that in the last bull run there were three crypto assets that were around when bitcoin was in well from the previous cycle that actually outperformed bitcoin there are only three. Now, are they going to do that this cycle? I highly doubt it. Yep. And this is where if people understood the upside left in Bitcoin and the relative risk in order to achieve that outcome, people would just buy Bitcoin, but they don't. And they fall for the scams. They fall for the promises. And this is what's particularly disappointing in my line of work to watch people fall for this over and over again. But Sadly, that's the proof of work of Bitcoin. People need to come in, burn their fingers, realize, oh, shit, that was a bad idea. Why'd I do that? Imagine how rich I'd be if I'd just bought Bitcoin and listened to that person, you know, that yeah. guy with the big bald head and glasses on. If I just had taken his advice and bought Bitcoin and sat back for the next 10 years, I'd be filthy rich and retired by now. But no, I was too smart. You know, what would this guy know? He's only looked at this thing for 10,000 hours. He spent the last 25 years looking at finance. He's looked at credit. He's basically assessed risk on a daily basis. What would he know? You sat in a risk <laughs> chair, as uh, Foss would say, hey? <laughs> yeah, you, you, and I think been... we all sit in a risk chair, but um, <laughs> probably more so when it comes from a finance perspective. So, yeah. Yeah, well, um, no, and, and then, you know, sort of just to round out the crypto chat is is really for me, if you just read the tea leaves, it's very obvious where this is going. Um, it only takes somebody who's deliberately trying to obfuscate things or trying to avoid the what seems to be fairly inevitable where around the, you know, from the SEC to other jurisdictions, they're clearly making a distinction between Bitcoin and these other assets. And, you know, I think, I don't actually have an issue if um, if all these other crypto assets, as they like to be called, um, are actually traded. That's that's not the issue. Um, it's the lack of disclosure. And so it just makes sense to me that if you're going to be selling these, um, what is I regard as sort of unregulated venture, liquid venture capital investments, then you should at least disclose like who owns what and what percentage of the of the the company you have and how did you actually allocate it in the beginning? Was it just friends and family and what price did they pay? I mean, these are all material things that if we bought a company on a stock exchange, I'd want to know. You're not going to just go and stick your company up there and say, hey, give me a hundred more. You're going to be like, who's this person? So yeah, I think um, when I look at it, 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 it doesn't bode well for crypto, which once again, just makes the sort of asymmetric side of the of betting on Bitcoin um, just so much more attractive. It's just, there's so much risk that is understated in crypto. And I think they're just, most of the people are just blinded by marketing narratives. And um, that's sort of what I, what I hope to be able to do through this podcast, just help people see marketing narratives for what they are. And then from there, you decide what, what you want to do. I mean, 
we all we've all bet on the sport you know of the outcome of a sports game once or twice i mean i've tried a bit of betting on ufc i got like four fights in a row and i was like jeez man this is it i'm good <laughs> and then <laughs> and then it all started i lost all my winnings obviously so you know then i was just like this is silly so it's the same with crypto um Sort of um, just to close things out, um, Pete, you've been, been very generous with your time. Um, what advice would you give somebody who's now sort of interested in Bitcoin, but is just truly overwhelmed by the sheer amount of information? Um, what are some of the best resources that you would direct them to or folks that you would suggest they start investigating? I think the most important thing you can do if you don't have any Bitcoin right now is to buy some Bitcoin. I tell everyone, buy however much Bitcoin you're prepared to lose. And once you own some Bitcoin and have some, you will then take a further interest in it. So just by default, by osmosis, owning that, you will then pay more attention to Bitcoin and what's happening in the world. I'd say avoid the altcoin scams and the promises that people are promising to, to outperform Bitcoin and have a very long view on it. If you hold this for 10 years, I think, you know, it'll be the best performing asset. It's been the best performing asset for the last 14 years. I think in the next 10 years, it'll be still the best performing asset. And all you need to do is literally buy and hold it. So I'd say buy and hold Bitcoin and then find some good resources and some good people who are Bitcoin oriented. So that means buying your Bitcoin, ideally from a Bitcoin only exchange and they'll have material, they'll have podcasts, they'll have news, they'll have emails that they share with you to help point you in the right direction. But I can tell you on a personal level, there are a number of people who have had a huge influence in my, my line of thinking. Um, Nick Zab, going back to Nick Zabo, I think he's been instrumental. Andrea Antonopoulos was a huge influence. Um, then you look at some great Australian actors, uh, Stefan Levera, he's got a podcast who is probably quite technical, but he's been a great actor since 2018 in this space and has got a back catalogue of 400 plus episodes to learn from. Um, you know, you've got Parker Lewis. I love his work gradually, then suddenly, and just about anyone wanting to learn about Bitcoin, there's a, an Audible series on that on Spotify. So you can sit down and listen to all of his work. He's releasing a book on that later. Um, Safadine Amus with the Bitcoin Standard, the Fiat Standard, and then Economic Principles, I think is his latest book. All of these, all of these people are, you know, fabulous advocates for Bitcoin. So it's just about, or alternatively, there's enough content on YouTube to to just watch these people on YouTube too. So um, alternatively, if you can't find that, I'd say give Dale a call. Probably knows more <laughs> than combined. So, <laughs> oh, do you know what? Like the, the funny thing is, I don't feel as if I've got very many original thoughts in Bitcoin. Partially because I'm uh, maybe not smart enough, and also I came late. Um, uh, when I, whenever I've had views they're largely i'm just echoing views from people i really respect my my number one person i think um and it's head and shoulders is is lynn alden i just absolutely love everything lynn does um when people say what's your view on this say go read what lynn says about it because that's it because <laughs> yeah I, I find it hard to sort of top the level of critical thinking and the ability to explain things simply um but really it's about finding somebody you can trust and there's obviously a lot of um, influences out there, kind of you know, with you know charts and scary faces in the um, in the sort of stall that you see at the beginning of the YouTube. Bitcoin's about a crash, so yeah, you don't trade this, and you really got to start um, you know learning from the ground up. What we would say, 
you know, first principles thinking, really try to understand it. And I'd say to people, start first ask the question, what is money? And then see where that goes. Um, all right. Sorry, of course. Before I go, I can't, yes. can't, can't go past mentioning Sailor and Breedlove on that oh. series. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that, is, that is just a fire hose of information. Even I sit down and listen to that and go, whoa, that is a fabulous rendition. And I think Sailor's our best advocate um, that we've seen in Bitcoin so far. So yeah. I'd be remiss of me to not mention him. But um, yeah, totally. Um, you know, he, he's... He is quite accessible. Um, yeah, I guess um, if you're philosophically inclined and really want to think on a deep level, um, Breed loves the man. Um, but there's there's something for everyone, and everyone has a different way of looking at Bitcoin. And yeah, uh, I guess I came in from a macro lens, but it really depends on who you are and the keys just identify some uh, reliable folks to steer in the direction. Um, Awesome. Well, it's been fantastic chatting. Uh, congratulations. Number one, it's out, uh, number one in the books. Um, really excited about this all and appreciate you being so kind as to appear. And uh, I look forward to having many more chats in the future there, Peter. I look forward to it too, Dale. Good luck Thanks. on this journey. I'm excited. Thanks so much. All right. Cheers. All right, so how'd you go with that? I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it made sense and that you got some value. If you have any feedback, good, bad or ugly, or any questions, I'd really like to hear from you. Uh, get in touch via Twitter, at Dale21M for 21 million. And if you found the episode useful or valuable in any way, please consider subscribing, giving it a five-star review, or otherwise just sharing it with a friend. I've said it before and I'll say it again, I'm not here to tell you what to invest in. I'm simply here to make sure that if you're gonna invest in crypto outside of Bitcoin, that you do so with your eyes wide open. Much love friends, appreciate you all, and I'll see you again soon. Cheers.